do love a good snack. Hello and welcome to Real Versus Feel, Netball Numbers That Matter, a podcast with me, freelance journalist Erin Dullahunty and Dr. Aaron Fox, a lecturer in applied sports science and research methods at Deakin University. In this weekly show, we align what it feels like happened in round 12 of Super Netball over the weekend to what the stats, that's the real, tell us. Of course, we wouldn't be here without our major sponsor, All-in-One Property. If you've purchased property, you know it involves tons of paperwork and stress. You've got to sort out conveyancing, finance and insurance, and that's if it's a simple deal. All-in-one property can handle every step or just one. Visit allinoneprop.com to learn more. I'd like to acknowledge I'm on the land of the Yoyota people in Echuca, and Aaron is on Wadarung land in Geelong. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I think I'm still catching my breath a little bit after that round, Aaron. Collingwood somehow beat one of the top sides, the Adelaide Thunderbirds. The Fever had to work out a way to get over the top of the Sunshine Coast Lightning, who we all thought were probably going to, you know, go down by a big margin. The New South Wales Derby was a – Derby Derby uh, was a cracker. And then Donna Wallum just put the Firebirds on her shoulders, basically, and just said – Let's go this way. We're going to beat the Melbourne Vixens, which was another really big upset this round. Yeah, so results-wise, I feel like this season has been relatively predictable. Yes. uh, Until this weekend where it was kind of utter chaos. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of hard to... I mean, by the end of the weekend, you didn't know who was going to win which matches. But obviously the Fever and the Swifts are kind of solidifying themselves at that top end towards Mm -hmm. the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Today, you're going to start us off with our statistical review of obviously the biggest upset of the year so far, uh, Collingwood getting over the Thunderbirds. Yeah, huge. I mean, in other sporting codes, when a coach is sacked, we often see what they call the dead cat bounce, which is where a team plays out of its skin for a few weeks under a new coach or maybe a caretaker coach. So maybe with Collingwood beating the Thunderbirds by three in the end, um, and, you know, the Thunderbirds, this is a side that many of us were tipping might win the premiership this year. Maybe we saw the dead pie bounce. This was the game they actually came out and used that emotion in a positive way. It was quite extraordinary to see them win obviously their last home game there at John Kane Arena and so much emotion you know was on display from not just the players but the coaches and everyone else sort of on the bench and behind the scenes for the pies as well. So it'll be interesting to see if they can cause any more chaos I guess um, in these last couple of rounds. Now statistically Shimona Nelson, 100% accuracy, 44 from 44. And probably even more significantly, she kept Shamira Sterling quiet. It felt a bit like opposite day, didn't it? You know, when you only saw her getting three gains, she had a bunch of penalties, 12 penalties as well. Um, The Thunderbirds' centre pass to goal rate was only 69%. And then Collingwood also scored six of the last 10 goals. So, I sort of, I had a little feeling in my gut, gosh, I hope they don't fail at the last hurdle here. And they didn't. They were able to sort of maintain, you know, what they they had done. Molly Jovic, uh, Jovic sorry, and Kelsey Brown, they dominated the Nissan net points, um, you know, the feeds, the center pass receives and all of those kind of mid, those mid-court metrics. Um, 
Yeah, look, and 12 to 9 gains in the Thunderbirds' favour, which feels a little bit like the Thunderbirds of old, doesn't it, where they haven't actually converted that onto the scoreboard. Now, you're going to tell us about the Fever Lightning Clash, please, Aaron. Mm, so the Fever got away with a win in this one, 60, 69 to 65. Mm-hmm. Um, but some things statistically are a little concerning for the Fever. Like you get the win, but... Both teams were sitting at 68% centre past a goal percentage, which isn't great for either team, but particularly mm. for the Fever, they've mm. been very strong in this area and it's not something I think they want to drop off on before finals. Um, the deflection to gain percentage, again, something that uh, stood out in this game. This is like how many gains you get relative to the number of deflections in the match. So the Lightning got eight deflections with two gains, which is... Not great, 25%. Mm -hmm. The Fever had 20 deflections, but only four gains from those. So, you know, getting lots of hands on ball, but not converting it to turnovers. Uh, And for the Lightning, they could have been a little bit more efficient in this one Mm -hmm. going into the shooting circle. They had 104 feeds Mm -hmm. to the Fever's 87, Mm. but both teams had 64 feeds with attempts. So 64 attempts from 104 feeds is... pretty low for the lightning and a little bit of in and out going into the circle so i mean not maybe not the prettiest game statistically Mm. um and something the fever you know might want to clean up but a win is a win yep um and penalties was the other thing that really stood out in this game and we're going to touch on this later Mm -hmm. uh the the low number of penalties that happened between these two teams uh, and now somehow you've ended up with both the cool upsets uh, of the weekend. <laughs> we normally you've do got... this in order too. We normally do this in chronological order. Did you notice that? But I just switched yeah, it around this want, week. You want these ones by the sounds of it. Are uh, the Firebirds somehow getting over the Vixens? Yeah, look, I mean, after the Firebirds beat the Giants a couple of weeks ago, uh, post-game, Beck Bully had a message for her players and it was basically, don't relax, don't switch off, don't check out. We've still got three or four games left. And, left. and they seem to have listened to... To her, they claimed another sort of late season scalp by beating the Vixens 76 to 71. Um, a side never can rely on one person and it's never the result of one person's effort. But Donnell Wallam shot 59 regular goals and six super shots for 71, um, which we're going to touch on later today. Remy Carmo too, I think probably in the, the Wallam um, excitement, probably got missed a little bit, but she had six gains. I think uh, let's we're going to have to track her season, I reckon, in the next couple of weeks because she's just getting better and better and better. Also, one of those players that fits in that category is Hannah Mundy, who, I mean, she's pretty much managed to take the bib off Liz Watson, really, um, at wing attack for the Vixens. She had 46 feeds, which was the best all round. Um, Now, the Vixens reached 10 gains. So as our listeners know, that's a a key measure for them. But of course, they lost. But I guess that isn't as surprising as when they win with less than 10 gains. Um, Look, there's so many things I want to focus on, but I'm going to hand over to you um, to talk to us about the New South Wales Derby Derby, please, Aaron. Derby Derby. Um, maybe we can find some middle ground for how we say that. Okay. Uh, I'm not really sure what that is, but we'll get there. Uh, so the Swifts continue on their merry way of just winning, um, not in like huge fashion or anything. They win this one 68 to 63, but they're slowly becoming that quiet achiever for the year that's... Or not so maybe quiet, not f- maybe. Not so yeah, quiet maybe now. maybe not flying under the radar anymore. <laughs> yeah. 
So the Giants were back to their usual with 13 to 9 super shots in this match and perhaps, you know, back to hanging out in games with these super shots. You know, it might have been a little bit worse if they didn't have this. The center pass to goal percentage was a big difference in this game. 77% for the Swiss versus 61% for the Giants. And then you've got 23 to 16 general play turnovers for the Giants to the Swifts. So low center pass conversion, turning the ball over, not yep. great to win netball games. Yep. Um, was Helen Housby the MVP again? Yes. Uh, 18 sure of was. 18 yep. and five of seven super shots. So just continuing, she, right, that's the flying under the radar bit, right? She's okay. the MVP flying under the radar for the Swifts. So <laughs> yep. I don't know, just keep an eye on that by the end of the year. Um, and Paige Hadley was probably the other dominant player yeah. in this match. Yep. 22 goal assists and 23 center pass receives. Um, so, yeah, just I, I don't know. The message from this one, just start paying attention to the Swifts. <laughs> I can think it's fair to say no one is sleeping on the Swifts premiership's odds anymore. So to our first subject today, and I'm calling it distance darlings. So... We'll get to your shot in the dark a little bit later, Aaron, but over the weekend, I was keeping an eye on the total penalties and contacts and obstructions for the purpose of, of um, tracking what you had predicted might happen. And I was staggered to see how few obstructions the Sunshine Coast Lightning was pinged for in their game against the Fever. They only had four not 14, four for the entire game. And this sort of floored me. I don't know if that's because I'm a defender and I would love to finish a game with only four obstructions. Um, but so to finish with four, Ash Irwin, who played three quarters at goalkeeper with a, a minor job there on Janiel Fowler. Uh, she had two, Mahalia Cassidy and Steph Wood each had one. Obviously, we're talking about a mid-court player and a goalie there. So that means that Carla Pretorius, who played three quarters at goal defence and one at wing defence, didn't have a single obstruction. So I need to know all about these distance darlings, as I'm calling them, who seemingly don't get pinged for obstruction. Is for for a team a record in Super Netball? And I guess the next logical thing is, you know, is is Lightning specifically, are they really are really good at this? Let's start there. Well, let me start with, you know, you call this distance darlings. Yep. I thought we were gonna start talking about super shots for a second there. <laughs> I um, hadn't thought about that. You're right. It could work yeah, for that. It could definitely I was work. Got, I was getting that. a little excited. Discipline um, distance darlings, maybe it okay, needs got to it. be. Got okay. It, got it. Um <laughs> So with the team stats and the least obstruction penalties, I was a little bit surprised by this, that mm -hmm. the four by the Lightning on the weekend is only the equal third lowest within a match. Okay. So the lowest is actually two obstruction penalties by a team, mm -hmm. and this has been achieved five times, the most recently by the Giants against the Magpies in round two of 2021. So, yeah, that two obstruction penalties has, hasn't happened for a couple of years. Uh, three obstruction penalties by a team has been achieved nine times uh, and it hasn't happened yet this year. Mm -hmm. And the four obstruction penalties, like we saw with the Lightning on the weekend, right. has been achieved 21 times. Okay. Uh, and this year it's happened twice, by the Lightning on the weekend and mm -hmm. by the Magpies against the Lightning in round 11 the week before. So uh, what we saw on the weekend by the Lightning isn't the best ever, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, equal best this year for low obstruction penalties. Mm, and interesting that they're winning some and losing some as well. And I'm glad it's not happening all the time and I wasn't sort of missing it though. I mean, I, I think it's worth noting here too that 
a little bit like contacts, the, the lack of a certain penalty can mean two things. Like I'm sort of intimating, obviously, that it's showing discipline from the players, um, but it can also mean that they're not in the contest and they're not getting their their arms up. So there are there is that kind of nuance that we need to to keep in the back of our mind. Um, so what about what what happens when we look at individual players? Um, Pretorius is a name that that sort of came up um, initially for not getting one this round. Now, this is what really surprised me because uh, when we're looking at individual player obstruction penalties, mm-hmm. I thought for fairness that mm-hmm. we'd only consider players who spent at least half a match, so 30 minutes, in a defensive position, sure. that being wing defence, goal defence, goalkeeper. Sure. And there's actually a surprising amount of players, even just this year, who have spent a lot of time in defensive positions and recorded zero obstruction penalties. Mm-hmm. So that clean distance game that you're mm-hmm. mentioning. Mm-hmm. So some specific players from this year, uh, Mahalia Cassidy, Ash Brazel, Kate Eddy and Latanya Wilson have all spent 60 minutes in wing defence, recorded zero obstruction penalties. And I would um, I would dare to suggest there without even having the information that those four, play, four players that you just mentioned all defended with their arms in the air at some stage. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not. You'd probably assume so. <laughs> you never, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's certain players that, that use that arms over differently. Um, but to get zero when you're in those defensive positions, particularly wing defense, I think, because mm. that is such a key part of the, the role. Yeah, it's really significant. Sorry to interrupt I mean, you, Aaron. I mean, I'm, I was sort of surprised by wing defense, but not as surprised as other positions like the, the shooting circle defenders, yeah, but it has happened. Yep. So, Jodie Ann Ward, Matilda Garrett, Sunday Arang, and Carl Pretorius mm-hmm. all spent 60 minutes in goal defence this year and recorded zero obstruction penalties. Amazing. And then you get to the goalkeepers, Shamira Sterling, Jeeva Mentor, Remy Carmo, and Lauren Moore have all spent 60 minutes in goalkeeper with zero obstruction penalties. So wow. this is something I thought would be relatively rare, but yeah. it actually happens uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I would too. And as you say, particularly a goalkeeper, you would think you are literally the last line of defence. So even at times where you think, oh, maybe I'm a little bit close, you probably are more likely than any other player to stick your hand up to make that shooter accountable. And if you you pick up an obstruction, you pick one up. I know that a lot of the teams have a a bit of a measure to say, this is where we sort of want to be tracking because you want to be in the game. You want to be applying that pressure, obviously. So tell me a little bit more about these zero obstruction defenders and who yeah who are the, who are the best and what positions do they tend to play mm, given this wasn't as rare as i thought mm-hmm. i wanted to look at um which players have had this zero obstruction penalty match on the most occasions okay, cool. and so looking at the top three players uh gabby simpson who's predominantly probably played wing defense has done this 50 times over her career uh ash brazel again predominantly probably a wing defence, has done this on 48 occasions. And a now-retired player, Stacey francis Mm -hmm. maybe a mix of wing defence and goal defence, has Mm -hmm. done it on 35 occasions. Mm -hmm. And then from what we saw on the weekend, just outside that top three is Carla Pretorius, who probably predominantly plays goal defence and has done this on 22 occasions. Um, and just to add to some of your clarification around this, <laughs> the important thing to flag, something that we raised recently on the podcast is advantage calls aren't recorded yes. in these champion data stats. So that could kind of impact, you know, how do the umpires call advantage from obstruction? And for wing defences, for example, it might 
be called more often than some other positions as the ball's moving through the court, right? Yeah, true, and you don't want to sort of pull that back necessarily to to delay mm. the opposition team. And probably goalkeepers too probably get away with a fair few advantage calls too because, you know, Janelle Fowler, she's under the post, it's going in anyway, and the umpire's kind of already on their way back um, to the mm-hmm. centre. So maybe after all of this chat we'll get champion data to start recording those um, advantages as well and then we can have all uh, of this I think information. You, have, you probably have that sort of pool in the netball world, right? I'm not sure about that. Uh, look, moving on to something um, different, our next subject is what I'm calling scoring oscillations. And our friend uh, Ian from Netball Scoop tweeted us last round to point out the huge drop in final scores um, for the West Coast Fever between their round 10 and their round 11 matches. So they went from 97 to 53. So 44 goals that disappeared in a week, as Ian Ian put it. I'm hoping, firstly, that you can confirm that this, in in fact, is the biggest round-to-round drop-off that we've seen. But it also got my mind ticking about the scoring patterns of teams more generally this season that I thought we could look at. Mm. So we'll start with the round-to-round drop-off. So basically what we do to look at this is compare the discrepancy in score from one round to the previous round within each year. Uh, And so I I wanted to note that there are potentially some unique examples over the years where teams may have had to play more than one game in a round, you know, in old competition structures, or even if you remember the rescheduling of the Vixens fever matchup. Yeah. Yeah. Or or COVID where we had mid round, midweek rounds and things. Yeah. So in these cases where it happened, we've taken the average score from a team that round and compared it to the previous. Okay. Uh, And so to confirm, the Fever's negative 44 (laughs) from one round to the other is indeed the biggest drop-off from one week to the next. Um, The next closest is from the Giants last year where Mm -hmm. they went from a score of 82 in round seven to a score of 43 in round eight. And quick maths there, Erin, that would be 39. (laughs) But it's it's funny, isn't it? It's funny, though, because... They've started from a lower point. It feels more significant to drop down to forty three. If that makes if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, like to when you. you're getting up to ninety seven. That's right. There's only there's only yeah. one way to go. Yeah. Mm. So so that probably played a part in how big that drop off was. Um, mm-hmm. The biggest increase from round to round is Ooh. from the tactics in round four of the twenty thirteen ANZ Championships, where they went plus forty. So they went from 40 in round three to 80 the following week. Wow. And this this is something that Ian also flagged in this discussion over Twitter that mm-hmm. back in the day there was a bit of a discrepancy between the New Zealand and Australian yeah. teams in some of these competitions. And yeah. so this increase was when the Tactics played a strong Vixens team Got one you. round. They finished second on the ladder that year. Got you. And, and then the next week they went up against the New Zealand team. Mystics team yeah. who actually finished the bottom that yeah. year. So it's kind of the perfect storm, um, yeah. Yeah, a bit of luck of the draw as to um, how big these discrepancies can be based on the the structure of your schedule. Yeah. So thinking of Super Netball at the moment, who is the the steadiest, I guess, in their their scoring and the least in this regard? I feel like the Swifts, for example, they always sit around 60 this season we're talking about and they always, at the moment, they're always winning. Whereas someone like the Firebirds, it feels like they fluctuate a lot more week to week, as you just mentioned, obviously depending on uh, their opponents. 
Mm. So to look at scoring consistency, we'll go back to a metric that we used in our round four show, which was the consistency rating. Mm -hmm. Back then we applied this to, you know, netball fantasy scoring, but we can mm -hmm. also apply it to a team score here. Mm -hmm. And to recap, what we're doing here is looking at the variation in a team score divided by their average. Um, and so this rating is in line with golf scoring. The lower this rating, the better. Okay. And it's important to flag that it's relative to a team's average. So it doesn't matter that the fever are, you know, much higher scoring than others because the variation we're looking at is relative to the average. Okay. So it's it's very normalized and it's a good one to compare. Okay. Uh, interestingly, you are spot on here. You know, your feel is matching the real. Mm -hmm. um, your assessment of the Swifts and Firebirds is spot on. Mm -hmm. These two teams are the most and least consistent mm -hmm. with respect to their scoring. Uh, but... Uh, you know, aside from that, the this consistency in scoring doesn't really match up with ladder position. Yep, the okay. top four most consistent teams scoring-wise are the mm -hmm. Swifts, Vixens, Lightning, and Magpies. Yeah. So there's a couple in the, the bottom four Each. there. Yep. And then the bottom four from most to least consistent, uh, oh, sorry, the least to most consistent are the Firebirds, Fever, Thunderbirds, and Giants. So hmm. interesting to see some of the heavy hitters, the Fever and the Thunderbirds, down so low on this list being inconsistent with their scoring but they both have had some anomalous high and low scoring games this mm. year so it's mm. it's it's sort of surprising but also not if you mm. really know those teams yeah I mean, it's always nice when the feel is actually right and i'm sure that's something that coaches track across time as well and they would know i guess for the players on the court when they're starting to feel you know when they're starting to feel comfortable now i know we talked about um donnell wallam last week and we sort of have a bit of a rule that we try not to focus too specifically on particular players but i think i've decided it has to be done again this week because she was as we talked about at the top she was responsible for 71 of the firebirds 76 final tally and their win over the melbourne victory so a bit of quick maths, Aaron. That's a lazy 93% of the total. Is that right? Are you pretending, are you, pretending you did that in your head? Uh -huh. just yep, just now. And I didn't do it at all <laughs> while we were putting together the rundown. Um, so I want to have a look now at uh, Donnell on fire, as I'm, as I'm calling it. She shot 59 regular goals and six super shots, uh, obviously there with a value of 12. And I was told late on Sunday that that was in fact a record for the number of, I guess we have to call them points for, for clarity, even though netball traditionally has never had points um if if that's you know that i think that's the way to sort of clarify it can you firstly confirm that for me and also my other suspicion which is that of course janelle fowler is probably responsible for the previous um highest contribution i guess um i'm wonder simone shimona nelson fits in probably somewhere as well is that right Mm, yeah, so let's start with the the highest scoreboard impact. That's a good total... way to call it, scoreboard yeah. impact. Thank you. Mm, the, the total number of players added to the scoreboard, goals or points, whatever <laughs> you choose to call them, that's up to you. Uh, you are correct. The 71 by Donald Wallen on the weekend is the biggest individual scoreboard impact a player has ever had in a match. Mm. Now, whenever we talk about records, Janiel Fowler's <laughs> name comes up, and it is... Fascinating to see when I output the metrics for these and I get this table, it's just like <laughs> Fowler. 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 Yeah, right. So number two was Fowler at 70 in round 12 of 2020. Mm -hmm. Shimona Nelson sneaks in there at number three with 69 in round 12 of 2021. Uh, but then number four and number five on the list is again Fowler with 68 and 67 in some various rounds of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So you'll notice two things from that top five list. They're all post-Supershot introduction. Of course, yeah. And they're mostly Janiel Fowler, right, yep. like I mentioned. Yep. Only two entries in the top ten come from pre-Supershot. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, they both come from Janiel Fowler, Fowler, where she scored 66 goals twice in 2018. Mm. Uh, Fowler happens to own 15 of the top 20 scoring matches, right? So that's, you know, quick maths, 75%. <laughs> Uh, the only other players in this top 20 are Donald Wallen two times, Shimona Nelson two times, and Romelda Aiken-George one time. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to extend it out even further to the top 30 scoring matches, Fowler owns 23 of those 30. Like, she just scores a lot, right? <laughs> she sure does. That's why she's been the five-to-five, six-time MVP. So what about the proportion of the team's scoring, like, total attributable to the individual player can you sort of dig into that a little bit more for me Mm. so there's one player there's one player who's had all of the top five contributions to their team scoring okay i'll I'll have a wild guess that the name is fowler (laughs) yes so she has the top five for this going from 94.4 percent up to 98.4 percent within one match uh and again if you extend this out to the top 10 janelle fowler owns eight of these top 10 spots uh the only other players to appear in this top 10 mm-hmm. is joe harton okay. she has 94.2 percent all the way back you know you might think this is recent but all the way back in round five of 2012 when she played with the tactics right no so super shots. Interesting. young yep. No super shots, young Joe Harton. Uh, only other player outside of Janiel Fowler who has ever contributed more than 94% of scoring to their team. Mm-hmm. And the other one in that top 10 is Donald Wallum's game from the weekend where she had 93.4%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, outside of Janiel Fowler, some other players to feature in this top 15 here are Caitlin Bassett back in 2011 with the Fever. She had 92.5%. Uh, Ronaldo Aiken George had 92.3% back in 2009 for the Firebirds, and Sam Wallace had 92.1% in round six of 2021 for the Swifts. Mm, wow. But we are back to talking about records and back to <laughs> yeah. talking about Janelle Fowler. Fowler. Oh, my memory isn't good enough to know, but perhaps um, Bassett and um, Aiken George. Oh, I'm just trying to nah, I'm just trying to think about who they would have been playing with at the time as well because that's always an interesting discussion about what is the role of the goal attack um obviously you know at the end of her career Nat Medhurst um you know was sort of criticized for that when she was playing with Fowler and they didn't sort of win a premiership with that combination but they've obviously found a way now now we have a special offer from our major sponsor all in one property Real versus Field listeners know by now that all-in-one property can help home buyers with conveyancing, loans, property law, and insurance. They can link you in with a bunch of property services so you can have one point of contact instead of many when purchasing a place. And the best bit is you can use all the services or just some. It's a one-stop shop for when you're buying a home, helping you handle the conveyancing, finance, insurance, and property law paperwork, reducing stress and saving time. And for a limited time, if you reach out to All-in-One Property and mention the podcast, you'll receive 10% off conveyancing services. Visit allinoneprop.com or call 03-999-824491 to discover how you can benefit from the streamlined property transfer process. 
It's now time for Fox Answers the Fans. And today's question comes to us via Instagram from a listener named Leslie. Leslie wants to know if there is such thing as such a thing as a scoring end in netball. She writes, in netball, umpires control the same half all game and obviously have different interpretations. So I wonder if one end of the court in super netball games generally has more goals scored on it than the other. A few recent games I've been at, like the Firebirds Vixens at the weekend, saw a certain end win, in inverted commas, each quarter. Does this happen much or was that just an anomaly? I thought that it was a really interesting question, Aaron, that we certainly not something that we've touched on before around ends. We often talk about which side won each quarter, obviously, but not really the end that they go to. How did you tackle this? Mm, there was a few ways I thought I could tackle this. So I'll explain what I did here. And okay. to start with, there's probably instances in specific matches mm-hmm. where we might see something like this. But you know, as we do, we take the scientific approach here mm-hmm. and we want to look at a decent sample of games. So mm-hmm. I looked at this in the Super Netball years, 2017 onwards. Okay. What I did for each match was identify the scoring end or the, the end that had the higher score for the match. Mm-hmm. And then the non-scoring end that had the lower the lower score for the match within a game. Mm-hmm. And then we take the average of the scoring end and non-scoring end across all these matches and look at the difference. And we need to then look at this difference and try and understand whether we think it's you know real or is an actual true impact, mm. right? So mm-hmm. we can cal- calculate something around our average difference called you know, a 95% confidence intervals, which gives us a range of what we think that difference might truly be. Now, this is a real statistical hat moment for you, Aaron. Yeah, like it's, I'm, it's getting, I'm, I'm getting a little bit lost here. <laughs> yeah. But what we're going to get at the end of this yep. is a range. Yeah. It, it, it's a range of differences of where we expect or, or what we expect the scoring versus non-scoring end to be. Okay. Before we get to the actual data, some fun facts around this topic. Okay. In the Super Netball years, there's been 17 matches yep. where the score at each end has been exactly the same. So this equates to just over 4% of matches. So each quarter so not, it's been the same as the game's gone. Across on. the match. Okay. Same number okay. of goals right. or points, whatever okay. you want to call them, okay. scored at one end versus the other. Yeah. The biggest difference within a match was between the Firebirds and Lightning in round one of 2020, mm-hmm. where 72 goals were scored at one end mm-hmm. versus 42 at the other. So that's a differential of 30. That's a scoring end. Yeah, that's definitely a scoring <laughs> end. But to actually answer the question, the average difference for the scoring versus non-scoring end over Super Netball is 7.25. Mm-hmm. And our 95% confidence around that value is mm-hmm. 6.74 to 7.76. Mm-hmm. So to put this in practical terms, okay. you can perhaps expect around seven to eight more goals to mm-hmm. be scored at the scoring end of a match on mm-hmm. average, mm-hmm. or that equates to a couple of goals per quarter. Okay. Now, whether this is a meaningful or true effect, you know, I'd put that up for debate. Yeah. This could randomly happen. Of or, course. You know, there's always going to be a team that's better than another. So, you know, I, I'm i not firmly believing that there is a scoring end, right? I, yeah. That's my that's my conclusion. Okay. Well, I mean, there's so many factors that obviously have to go into considering whether that is a real 
tangible thing or not because as yeah as with any other statistic why why they had the ball how they had the ball what they did with it obviously impacts it but thought it was um really interesting I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that another time to make sure I'm completely understanding your approach Aaron slow it down a little bit thank (laughs) you we love we love your mathematical mind thank you for that please keep your fox answers the fans questions coming using real v feel as your hashtag on your favorite social media platform now, Aaron, for Della Bluntly this week, I believe you are taking us across the ditch. <laughs> the ditch, yep. Yes, that. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. I mean, we obviously focus on Super Netball on this podcast, but with the World Cup in South Africa creeping ever closer, it's natural that we start thinking about it. And while international netball is thankfully no longer a two-horse race between Australia and New Zealand, it is our neighbours over the ditch that I want to focus on today in Della Bluntly. Yes, Jamaica will push for a medal at the World Cup. Yes, South Africa could surprise a lot of people. Yes, England might find a way. And other nations are catching up to the top sides. But for me, the Silver Ferns, who are going to be named on June 7, are shaping as a mighty big threat to the Diamonds. And it's not just because of the players that master coach Nolan Tharoa has to pick from. Grace Nowicki is your um, uh, Kallenbergers, so many others that you could name. But the fact that they're going to have so long together before the tournament begins in late July. That's because, of course, the ANZ domestic season concluded at the weekend with their grand final. Uh, and meanwhile in Australia, the players who are going to represent Australia still have at least two rounds of Super Netball to play plus four finals and for those players who make the grand final on the super netball grand final on july 8 there's going to be very limited time to be with the group that are going to travel to south africa and prepare the first day of competition in cape town is july 28 so we're talking about three weeks here which is probably it is better than what we had for the 2019 world cup but still a very tight turnaround Meanwhile, the Silver Ferns build-up is starting to look eerily like what they had for the 2019 World Cup in Liverpool. And we know who won that tournament. They were wearing black dresses. Aaron. So the Silver Ferns build-up is going to include a camp in Auckland starting on June 27, and then a build-up camp on the Sunshine Coast here in Australia in early July. Of course, Nolene Tarua has a very close connection to the coast, having coached in Super Netball. Before the 2019 Cup, the Ferns held a similar camp on Sunshine Coast, and Tarua and the playing group attributed much of their success in Liverpool to what happened there. Can I add in here just quickly that Laura Langman is helping the Ferns in their preparation for this upcoming World Cup. She's taking on a technical role, according to reports, with a focus on strategy. So the time before a major tournament is absolute gold dust. And from where I'm sitting at the moment, the Silver Ferns have already got one over the Diamonds because they're going to be more cohesive and more prepared. Underestimate them at your peril. I say, Aaron. Well, Aaron, you know my perspective on this from our chat earlier, but (laughs) I am still firmly in the Australian camp. They keep winning. I will get out of their camp when they stop winning. (laughs) And I reminded you, we lost the last World Cup. This is the trophy. Uh, This is the one that matters. This is the last one that we're looking for to, to make our return to the top of the mountain complete. I'm not suggesting the Diamonds aren't going to win, but I think we need to be very, very careful of those silver fans. 
I look forward to checking in on this at the end of the World Cup. <laughs> it's now time to talk about checking in, to check in how your shot in the dark went for this round, Aaron. Last week you decided to focus on in on the number of penalties in a specific game based on a few things that had happened during the season that you'd observed. So you predicted that in the Fever Lightning game, with obviously the Fever keen to clean up after getting pinged for so many penalties last week and the Sunshine Coast generally being a low penalised side, you suggested that their clash would result in under 100 total penalties, which would put it in the top 10 for the least penalised games this season. And you just, just got it. Well done. I don't know where this just is coming from. Like, this is definitely a win. The 93 penalties (laughs) is the equal... Equal six lowest number of penalties in match this season. It's under 100. It's in the top 10. It is. It definitely counts, but it was slowly <laughs> ticking up there and I thought you might have been a little bit concerned there at one stage. A little bit. Not really. <laughs> Look, it must feel good to finally get it right. You know, what do they say about a broken clock? That's right. <laughs> oh, that's a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you thinking about for this round for your shot in the dark, Aaron? Mm. Now, Erin, some people who are less objective than me consider mm-hmm. 13 to be an unlucky or a spooky Round number, eight, right? 13, yeah, okay. So I decided to look at the win-loss record of teams across the Super Netball years in round 13. Oh, and okay. the interesting ones that stood out to me are the two current top teams on the ladder, the Swifts and the Thunderbirds, who have each only won once in round 13 over the mm. last six years. Both are playing teams out of final contentions this week, the Thunderbirds against the Lightning and the Swifts against the Firebird. Mm -hmm. But for this week, let's take objectivity out of it and consider whether the Thunderbirds and Swifts have a spooky round 13 (laughs) curse placed on them and that they both lose again in round 13 against their lower ranked opponents. I really like this one. I think that's a, that's a great one to look at. And from a, you know, purely narrative point of view, it would make things very interesting if they do both lose. I think the fever in particular are, are looking very longingly at that perchance for a double chance. So um, we'll keep a close eye on that one. That's nice and easy for the listeners to follow along with as well. Well, that's a wrap for our latest episode. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is always at RealVFeel and send us your Fox Answers the Fans questions using the hashtag RealVFeel. All in One Property is a dedicated property service provider. It's a one-stop shop for when you're buying a home, helping you handle the conveyancing, finance, insurance and property law paperwork, reducing stress and saving time. Use all of the services or just some. Visit allinoneprop.com to find out more.